Well, good morning. Good to see you all. It's been, it's been really a delight for me to be really here all week and uh, just to see the, the delight and hunger in God's Word and, and to be with friends as well. That, that has been just uh, so encouraging to me and to my wife, Diane. I'm, Diane is leaving this morning, actually, to go to Portland to see our kids and grandkids, so she's not here today. But if you have a Bible, uh, turn to Revelation chapter 7. That's what we'll be working uh, through this, this morning, Revelation chapter 7. And, and I'm going to talk about three themes, three broad themes. We'll, I'll be talking about some other things as well. But my three themes are sealed, sealed, suffering, and safe forever. Sealed, suffering, and safe forever. Let's pray again. Our Father, we do come to you this morning with many things doubtless on our minds. We pray that your Holy Spirit would come and would illumine the eyes of our hearts. We pray, Lord, that you would work and act and that you would show us wonderful things in your word. Lord, I pray for myself that you would speak through me. Lord, make us discerning hearers. Make us like the Bereans, searching, examining, testing the scriptures to see if these things are so. Lord, may, may, may our hearts not be dull, but would you make us so that we are eager to hear and to obey your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're aware at this time in history that the church is a remnant. As Americans, at least I think that's true of me as an older American, we're we're prone to think of ourselves, even as Christians, as the majority, as the mainstream, as the group that dictates cultural mores and cultural patterns. But Revelation reminds us, as Christians that we're not the majority, we're the minority. We have a message that saves the world. But the world is set against the, uh, our message, and the world is set against our Christ, isn't it? So we must stand boldly and lovingly and fearlessly in the days in which we live. We must love the world, and we must give it the gospel, And we must not worry if the world doesn't love us. Indeed, if it hates us, we should expect opposition. We should expect attack. We should expect that there will be adversaries. You know, that's the way it's always been. When when, when Luther started to point out the corruption in the church of his days and to proclaim the gospel, he was in great danger. And, they, and, and, and the church authorities, they wanted to get their hands on him. And if they had gotten their hands on him, it would have been the end of his life. He could have easily been a martyr, but God protected him. That was God's will. It turned out that way, but it could have easily happened otherwise for him. So we see in this passage today that we're a remnant. 
We, we are the Lord's army. We're the Lord's army in a world that's opposed to our God. We're protected by God, but we also suffer at the hands of the world and will be rewarded in God's presence forever. Since we belong to God and we are safe, nothing and no one can ultimately harm us. Well, let's look at our text for today. I want to read the whole chapter and then we'll work through it again. Revelation chapter 7. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the seal, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, and and, then 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. So I I think this text, pretty obviously, right, can be split into two major parts, verses 1 through 8 and verses 9 through 17. So I'd like to begin by asking the question, what is the identity of the 144,000 in verses 1 through 8? But before I answer that question, let's just back up and look at the first few verses of this chapter. 
The, the chapter begins with the words, after this. Those, those words don't necessarily mean that the events of chapter 7 follow or take place after the events in chapter 6. We saw, we saw last night, if you were with us, that the sixth seal means the end of history has arrived. The sixth seal designates, denotes the final judgment. So in this context, the words after this simply denote John's next vision, the chronology of the visions. They don't indicate that John writes here about events after the end of history. Actually, chapters 6 and 7 are closely related. Chapter 6 concludes with this question. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? And chapter 7 is going to answer that question. Who can stand on the great day of the wrath of God and the wrath of the Lamb? That's the most important question in life. Nothing matters more than whether we can stand before God on the day of judgment. And chapter 7 tells us who stands and why we can stand. Let me also say something about John's use here of symbolic language. And as chapter 7 opens, we see four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. Now that doesn't mean, does it, that the Bible teaches that the world is flat with four corners. We must remember, and this is an obvious example, isn't it, that John uses symbolic and apocalyptic language. The four angels are holding back the four winds of the earth, and they so, so they don't blow against the earth, the land, and the sea. But the Bible isn't teaching, is it, literally, that there's only four winds on earth. That's symbolic. The four, the four winds signify the judgment of God, which the angels are holding back. So I think the four winds are another way of talking about the great day of wrath that we see at the end of chapter 6. They're another way of talking about, symbolically, the judgment of God. The angels are holding back that judgment, that final judgment. That's true even now, isn't it? Why isn't the judgment taking place now? It's being held back. It's being restrained. God has said not yet. Before that judgment comes, the angels are going to seal God's servants on their foreheads. The seal, the seal isn't a literal seal imprinted on their foreheads, is it? It's not a literal seal. It isn't visible. And this helps us to see that later on, the mark of the beast, that's not literal either. It isn't a literal mark on people. The seal symbolizes God's protection and God's ownership of his people. And what does God protect us from? We're sealed. He protects us from his wrath. That's what we're protected from. You know, the background to what John talks about is relayed in Ezekiel chapter 9. The Lord tells Ezekiel, he's going to judge Jerusalem for its grievous sins, but the godly will be spared. So this is when Jerusalem around, you know, around the 600s, Jerusalem has fallen into significant sin. And here's what, here's what the Lord says through Ezekiel in chapter 9, verses 4 and 5. I think you'll see 
you'll see that this is an anticipation of the judgment in the book of Revelation. Pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. And to the others, he said in my hearing, pass through the city after him and strike. Your eyes shall not spare, and you shall show no pity. So so those sealed, do you see that? Both in Ezekiel and Revelation are protected from God's judgment with a mark on their forehead, but not a literal mark. But who are those sealed in Revelation? John tells us that they are the 144,000 from every tribe of the sons of Israel. He then specifies that there are 12,000 from each tribe, listing them tribe by tribe. The census, the census of the tribe reminds us of the book of Numbers, where Israel is numbered before they go to war. So the 144,000 are, so to speak, God's army. That's what I said at the beginning. The 144,000, they're God's army. They're God's, they're God's warriors. Now, now I want to say a word. I want to say a word about the number 144,000. I think there are good reasons to think that number is symbolic and not a literal number. And we've already seen, you know, Greg Beale showed us last night, right? The seven spirits of God. That's, that's a symbolic number designating the fullness and the perfection of the spirit. So to here, I think this number is symbolic and not literal. I mean, the number 12 is very important in the scriptures, isn't it? 12, 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles. But, but here, the symbolism is also communicated in that we have 12 times 12. 12 times 12 is 144. And then that number is multiplied by a thousand. So I think that's John's way of kind of screaming to us. This is symbolic. This is not a literal number. I think many have gone astray in interpreting this number as a literal 144,000. Jehovah Witnesses, as you know, take this literally. Certainly some very strange ideas have been spread abroad about the identity of this group. You know, have you ever thought about how many strange ideas entered our culture in the 19th century? Right? It was a very interesting time. You think of Jehovah Witnesses. You think of Mormons. You think of Seventh-day Adventism and all their speculations about the end. Well, on and on it goes. The 19th century was a very odd time in our history. Anyway, the 144,000 are another way, I think, of describing the countless multitude that we see in verse 9. They're the same group. So, so it's, ta- it's, a, it's taking a, me a while to get here, isn't it? But that brings me back to the question. Who are the 144,000? Many think, many think that they're literally Jews, literally the sons of Israel. That makes sense. Since John says they're, they're, they're from the 12 tribes of Israel and that he lists 12,000 from 12 different tribes. I have many, many friends who believe that. Why would, they say, why would John linger over naming 12,000 from 12 different tribes if it isn't literal? Furthermore, 
I think, I think Greg Beal and I have a little difference of opinion here. Furthermore, this could fit with Romans 11 if you see an end time salvation there of ethnic Israel, which I do see in Romans chapter 11. Maybe we could talk about that a little bit. So it could fit with that. So the idea that John speaks here of the salvation of ethnic Israel, it could be right, could be correct. Still, I don't think that's convincing. I don't think Paul is speaking here of ethnic Jews who are believers. I think he's thinking here of the church of Jesus Christ, both Jews and Gentiles who are saved. In other words, I think John is thinking here of the church as the fulfillment of the promises given to Israel. John is thinking of the church as the new Israel. In other words, I think John is thinking of all Christians. John's describing us in this passage. It's it's not just about people who are saved from the Jewish nation in the future. Okay, here we go. You ready? I'm going to have seven reasons to defend that view. Because I don't want to just tell you, hey, that's what I think. Because you have to test it, right? So I'm going to give you seven reasons to defend that view And I should finish these seven reasons by about noon. (laughs) Obviously, I'm kidding. All right, first, what I've already said about the 144,000 fits this view. The number is symbolic, clearly symbolic. And it most naturally then refers to the whole people of God, the uncountable number of Jews and Gentiles that are saved. So in other words, all of us as Christians are part of the 144,000. The passage, as I said, it's our story. It's our life that's described. Second, Revelation has already said, or implied at least, that the church is the new and true Israel instead of ethnic Jews. In Revelation 2, verse 9, John says that unbelieving Jews are not true Jews but they're a synagogue of Satan. That's very strong words. That is not anti-Semitic, is it? John is Jewish himself. And remember, these believers, Christian believers, were being persecuted by the Jews in this time. So, of course, some things have been done throughout Christian history to discriminate against Jews by Christians. But that's not what John's arguing for here. He's simply saying they, they think they belong to the people of God. They don't. And then in Revelation 3.9, John says, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews, and they're not. They're not. Of course, they are ethnic Jews. What's John saying? They're not true Jews. They're not spiritual Jews. They're not the true Israel. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. What is amazing about that is that John alludes to the Old Testament here. And in the Old Testament verses from Psalm 86... In Isaiah 49, it says the Gentiles, Psalm, you could check this out, Psalm 86, I think it's verse 9, I actually didn't write down the verse, but Psalm 86, Isaiah 49, in the Old Testament, those, the, the verse says the Gentiles will come and bow down before the Jews. Do you see how John tweaks and reverses that? Now the Jews come and bow down before the Gentiles, to Gentile Christians. Because these Jews are a synagogue of Satan. They don't belong to God. They persecute the church of Jesus Christ. 
the Gentile Christians are the true Jews, and the Jewish unbelievers are like pagan Gentiles. We read in Revelation 5.10 that the church is called the kingdom of priests, but in Exodus 19.6, Israel is called the kingdom of priests. But that blessing is now given to the church of Jesus Christ, made up of both Jews and Gentiles who believe in Jesus. So that's my second reason. You with me? My second reason is in the book we see we see that Gentile Christians, Gentile and Jewish Christians, are called the true Israel. They're the true Jews. Third, third reason. Revelation chapter 14. Revelation 14, I'm not going to read all the verses, but Revelation 14 again talks to us about the 144,000. They appear again in the book in Revelation 14, verses 1 through 5. In, in, in Revelation 14, verse 3, we see a description of the 144,000. And John says the 144,000 are those who had been redeemed from the earth. Or verse 4 says they have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. So who are the 144,000? They're the redeemed. But there's no indication that it's only some, right? They're all the redeemed. He doesn't say they're the redeemed from Israel. He says they're the redeemed from the earth. All of those who are redeemed. The whole people of God. Who are the 144,000? It's you and me. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ. It's your story, isn't it? It's not, it's not, it's not some abstract story about some people in the future you've never met. But it's the whole people of God, the church of Jesus Christ. Fourth, fourth reason, the listing of the tribes doesn't fit with any other listing of the tribes in the Old Testament. They are never listed in this order elsewhere, suggesting that it should be read symbolically. Perhaps, perhaps Judah is first, since Jesus the Messiah comes from Judah. It's striking that Dan, the tribe of Dan, is omitted. Did you notice that? Perhaps because of the evil associated with the tribe of Dan. We can think of Judges 18, for example. Instead, we have Joseph and Manasseh. But that's curious, since Manasseh descends from Joseph. And we would expect from the Old Testament, Ephraim and Manasseh. So I think the, the unusual listing of the tribes suggests he's writing symbolically. Not literally. Fifth. The fifth, the fifth argument isn't such an exegetical argument, but I think it's important still. Ten of the twelve tribes, ten of the twelve tribes were lost to history when Revelation was written. The ten tribes, when they went into exile, intermarried with the Gentiles after the northern kingdom was sent into exile. I mean, this is even more true today, right? How many, how many Jews know their tribal identity today? Ethnic Jews. I mean, virtually none, right? I mean, tribal identity in, in, in Israel is so tied up with the land in the Old Testament. And of course, some, many, some Jews are back in the land, but they, they have no, there's no tribal distinctions anymore. 
So I don't see how anyone can think that John speaks literally of the 12 tribes when we recognize there are no longer distinct tribal groups in Israel. No, No Jew virtually knows what tribe they're from anymore. I mean, I mean, you could say, well, it's known to God what tribe someone comes from. But, but what, what does that ultimately mean? I, I, I don't, because people who say this are going to say, well, the, this is interpreted literally. But what does it mean to say it's interpreted literally if people don't even know their tribal identity? Do you see what I'm saying? It's, it's, it's just hard to see what sense that finally makes. At least that's my take on it. Sixth, sixth argument. The literary technique used by John suggests that he speaks symbolically. I I, I talked about this last night. Remember in chapter 5? John is told, John is told that Jesus, as the lion of the tribe of Judah, would conquer. But when he looks, he sees a lamb. The same person. Jesus Christ is the lion and the lamb, isn't he? What John heard and what John saw, what he heard, a lion, what he saw, a lamb, it's the same person, Jesus Christ. So here, so here, in chapter 4, John hears, did you notice that? John hears the number who are sealed. He hears the number. Just as he told about the lion, he hears the number. But in verse 9, when he looks, do you see the parallel? When he looks, he sees a great multitude, which no one could number. So we have the same phenomenon, the same kind of thing we see in chapter 5. What John heard about the 144,000 and what he saw... The great multitude, that's the same entity, isn't it? It's the same reality. He simply describes the people of God from two different perspectives. The 144,000, an uncountable multitude. So the 144,000 that he heard are seen in the great multitude. It's not two different groups. It's the same group. They're the true Israel of God. They're the fulfillment of God's promises to his people. On the other hand, they're the uncountable multitude, which I'll say more about. Sixth, sixth argument. Seventh? Six, seven. I'm I'm using these numbers symbolically. (laughs) Whatever. I've obviously got off track here. So... John says, so I have eight arguments, sorry. John says, this is chapter 14 again. John says the 144,000 are virgins. They're virgins who have not defiled themselves with women. But surely that language that the 144,000 are virgins is symbolic. Surely John's not saying to have sexual relations in marriage is to defile yourself, right? That's, that is actually a false gospel, 1 Timothy 4, to say that it is wrong to get married. 
Nowhere does scripture teach that. Surely this language is symbolic. It goes back to the Old Testament, doesn't it? That Israel is to be the bride of Yahweh only and to be a pure virgin or committed only to God. Devoted only to Christ, 2 Corinthians 11, chapter 2. So so we see here so clearly when he's using this language of the 144,000 being virgins, it's so clear, isn't it, that it's symbolical language. Because it just isn't true that sexual relations in marriage defile you. So he's speaking of attaching yourself to a false god. Finally, maybe the hardest one to understand, but just a hint. We have a hint I think in Ezekiel 47, now Ezekiel 40 through 48 are those chapters about the rebuilding of the temple, which I don't think refers to a literal rebuilding. But Ezekiel 40 through 48 speak of those, in those chapters of the rebuilding of the temple, which I think finally refers to the people of God and to Jesus Christ himself. But we have a hint in Ezekiel 47 that John writes symbolically. In Ezekiel chapter 47, Verse 21, Ezekiel writes about the division of the land among the tribes. And here's what he says. This is Ezekiel chapter 47, verse 21. You are to divide this land among yourselves according to the tribes of Israel. You will allot it as an inheritance for yourselves and for the foreigners living among you who have fathered children among you. You will treat them like native-born Israelites along with you. They will be allotted an inheritance among the tribes of Israel. In whatever tribe the foreigner lives, you will assign his inheritance there. Do you see that? So I think this passage is saying foreigners, Gentiles who belong to Israel, they're considered to be part of the tribes of Israel. And I think that's fulfilled in this passage. They're not literally Jews, but they're considered to be among the tribes. I think that's a reference to this passage. The foreigners here are said to be part of the tribes of Israel. Foreigners receive the inheritance along with the tribes. And they're even allotted part of the tribal inheritance. So I think we have good reasons to say the 144,000 refers to the church of Jesus Christ. That's our story. What's the significance of what is written here? Why does John tell us that the 144,000 are sealed? Well, let's remember the end of chapter 6 again. It ends with the question, for the great day of their, that's God and the Lamb, the great day of their wrath has come, who can stand? And this chapter, these verses answer that question. Only those who belong to God. Only those who stand under his protection. So are you sealed and protected? Do you belong to God and Jesus Christ? How should you respond if you know you're protected? You praise God, right? If a storm sweeps through a city and you are spared and you know you didn't deserve to be spared and you ask yourself, why was I spared? You're grateful, aren't you? For being spared. You're thankful. If a deadly plague 
devastates your town. And nearly everyone in the city gets the plague and dies. And you deserve to die. And you are spared. You're, you're, you're thankful. So I think that's what John is telling us here. We're, we're to be so thankful if we're, if we're sealed. What if someone were to say, but I want practical help. I want practical help today. I want practical help about how to be a good mother or father. Or how do I behave as a Christian in the workplace or in school? Or how should I speak to unbelievers? Or what does it mean practically to be a good church member? Or how can I minister to other believers? This is a little bit abstract. Now, I think those questions are important. And and I think applying the scriptures to those situations matters. But I want to say something here that I think is more fundamental. If you're a thankful person, if you are filled with joy because you've been sealed and protected and saved, if your heart is filled with praise and joy, you're going to be a good mom and dad. You're going to be. You're going to be a good church member. You're going to minister to unbelievers, aren't you? For everyone who meets you will recognize that you are a person of joy, and that's contagious. People notice the difference. Not that we don't suffer, not that we don't go through hard times, but there's a joy, right? There's a joy that God gives his people. And when we're filled with that joy, it radiates to other people. They sense it. They, they, they sense finally that joy doesn't come from that person, especially if we give praise to God. They know that the joy of the Lord is our strength. And joy comes from knowing that we're saved and that we're sealed by God, that we have the seal of God on our lives, that he owns us. We also see in this passage that we conquer through suffering. We see that in verses 9 through 17. So we have the uncountable multitude there. They're the ones who've conquered in their suffering. So the scene shifts in verse 9, doesn't it? And John sees a multitude of people from every tribe, language, people, and nation. So here we see the fulfillment of the promise given to Abraham, right? That all nations would be blessed in Abraham. We have to see this uncountable number that's blessed through the son of Abraham, Jesus Christ. So the uncountable multitude, as I said, just in case you fell asleep during those eight points, that uncountable multitude is the church of Jesus Christ. It's the 144,000, isn't it? And where is this multitude in this vision? Where are they? Where's this taking place? They're in God's presence. They're before the throne in the presence of the Lamb. The throne in Revelation is always in heaven. They're in the new creation. So they're in heaven. They're in God's very presence. They're in the new creation. Did you notice, did you notice again that the Lamb is on the same level with God? Since believers stand before the throne of God and the Lamb, we talked about that last night. Salvation is a gift of God. Salvation belongs to our God. It comes to us from God and from the Lamb. True believers worship worship Jesus Christ as the lion 
and the Lamb. We worship Him as our God. So one thing we can do, right, when we gather together is to encourage one another in the fresh winds of the gospel, of what, as those who are saved and belong to God. That means we are a forgiving people. Sometimes people say about those of us who are reformed, do you know what I mean by that phrase? Those of us who emphasize the sovereignty of God, that God ultimately saves us, not our free choice. That's what I mean by reformed here. That ultimately our salvation is due to God's election of us, not our choice of him. Of course, we do choose, don't we? But it's we choose because he chooses us first. We love because he loved us first. So sometimes people say about those of us who are reformed that we're the most critical and negative and fault-finding people they know. I've heard people use the expression about people like us. Maybe you're not with me on this, so. but I still say us. <laughs> I've heard people say they're Nazi Calvinists. That's what they are, Nazi Calvinists. Well, sometimes that's been true of us, probably, hasn't it? So let us be known as those who are full of truth, but also full of forgiveness and grace and mercy because we've received mercy. Let's not compromise on sin. Let's not compromise on truth. But let's ask God to spare us from pride and arrogance. So we'll be large-hearted and gracious and merciful and joyful. Well, we see in this passage the tribulation and the blood of the Lamb. When the angels see the greatness of God, including the four living beings and the 24 elders, and I think that designates angels here, when, when they see that, they're overcome with joy and glory. They fall down before the throne and worship God. You know, when, when we truly see God, we worship him. I'm, I'm going to read you a little story here. I'm going to read you a story about someone who's converted. I, I just read you this story because it's such an encouraging and amazing story. Because this, what happens when we meet God, we worship him. I'm going to read you the story about a a guy named Richard Morgan. Richard Morgan was converted at 62 years of age, which is encouraging because a lot of times old people are very resistant, aren't they? But God can strike through and save people at any age. He was saved at 62 years of age in 2008. He was a Mormon for a while when he was young, but then he became a convinced atheist through the writings of... uh, Richard Dawkins, a famous atheist. So this Richard Morgan became involved in a discussion forum about evolution. And, the, and, and in this forum, you know, on blogs and that sort of thing, they were discussing Dawkins' work. And a Scottish pastor named David Robertson joined in. First, he wrote a book about Dawkins' view. And then he started responding on the blogs with this forum. Richard Morgan joined in with those who fiercely criticized Pastor Robertson. You can imagine how blogs are, and sometimes they are incredibly mean-spirited. But Morgan became disturbed by some of the hateful things the atheists posted on the blog. 
When he protested to his fellow atheists about the spirit of their comments on the blog, they turned on him. (laughs) So he started corresponding with Robertson. And the pastor just asked him. This is all the pastor asked him. This is so amazing. The pastor said, what could make you believe in God? That's what he wrote him. That's not extremely challenging, is it? What could make you believe in God? Here's what happened next in Richard Morgan's own words. And in that instant, in that very, very instant, some words came into my mind, which I must have learned years, 40 years previously. We love because he first loved us. In an instant, my perception of just about everything changed. It was as if I was seeing precisely the same things as I was seeing before. But whereas before everything had been a two-dimensional image in black and white, suddenly it sprang into a three-dimensional image in full color. I mean, in that instant, I understood the expression, amazing grace. I was absolutely amazed. That was at 1024 on the morning of the 12th of April, 2008. I remember looking at my watch because I was thinking, you know, if I'm having a nervous breakdown, it might be useful to know what time it started to happen to me. And I could not understand what was happening. I could not understand. I was certain without having any rational explanation for it that God existed that he loved me without waiting for me to love him, that he loved me unconditionally without waiting for me to deserve it or to be worthy of it in any way. And at one level, that made complete sense because I know that as human beings, we cannot give what we have not received. And we cannot love unless we have received love. I knew that we as human beings need love. We need to love and we need to be loved. And here was the greatest source of all love manifested to me personally in this inner experience because somebody asked me, what could make you believe in God? After having spent years immersed in reason and science and philosophy, I realized that that was not the way to God. And I was able to refuse that. And in refusing that, it was as if the gates of heaven were opened up to me in a real instant. So, salvation, right? Salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb, doesn't it? And he gives it to his people. And, and, and we become new, don't we? In verse 13, one of the elders approaches John to ask him the identity of those who have white robes and those who are clothed with palm branches. The white robes signify that they're clean before God. And the palm branches come from Leviticus chapter 23 in the Feast of Booze, where the people wave palm branches because of their joy. The palm branches signify joy and praise when there's triumph. We remember this in Jesus' entry, you know, on on Palm Sunday, Sunday. The joy, the joy of crying Hosanna as Jesus enters Jerusalem. Well, we see the same theme in, a, in an, uh, an apocryphal book, Second Maccabees 10.7. Therefore, carrying ivy-wreathed wands and beautiful branches and also fronds of palm, they offered hymns of thanksgiving to him who had given success to the purifying of his own holy place. Here, 
Here, why are there palm, palm branches and joy? They're filled with joy because they've come out of the great tribulation. That great tribulation, when did it begin? It began, I would argue, in the first century, in the persecution inflicted by Rome. The great tribulation, I think, refers to the whole period, the whole period from Jesus' death and resurrection to the end of history. So we're in the great tribulation too. I would argue. He's not thinking of a seven-year period in the future. He's thinking, he's thinking of our life and your life and the life of Christians who've gone before us. And if there's Christians who come after us, it's a period of intense distress that will climax, I think, with greater distress at the end. So we saw in verses 1 through 8 that God protects his people. He seals us. But we also see that believers suffer, right? They're in the great tribulation. They go through that. That's our story. God protects us from his wrath. He seals us, but he doesn't protect us from suffering. He doesn't promise that. He He doesn't want us to think that being sealed means our lives will be easy. We'll suffer. Being joyous does not mean that we have a false and superficial kind of happiness where we force out artificial and unreal praise the Lord's. There's a joy in the Christian life mingled with grief and pain and anguish, but we'll triumph over all suffering. And how do we triumph? How do we come out of the great tribulation? We're told in verse 14, they've washed their robes and made them white by the blood of the Lamb. How does one get sealed? How does one get God's protection? And we're told the the fundamental answer, the most important answer right here. If you want white robes, if you want clean robes, you've got to wash them in blood. (laughs) Isn't that a striking image? You don't put white robes and blood to make them white. But you do this time, right? It's a picture, isn't it, of the death of Jesus Christ that cleanses us of our sins. The cross, never forget this, the cross of Jesus Christ is central in Revelation. It's just what we'd expect. Often in Revelation, white robes also, white robes and garments designate the righteousness of the saints, the godly lives we live. We see that in Revelation chapter 3, verse 4. We saw it last night, Revelation 6, verse 11. Chapter 7, verse 9 even. But John here gives us the ultimate reason, the ultimate reason our robes are white. And that's the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the cleansing work of Christ on our behalf. Our salvation is due to the blood of the Lamb, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So we're sealed. We suffer. We're sealed. We're protected. We suffer. And then finally, the last thing I want to look at, we're safe. We're safe forever. We're safe forever. That's verses 15 through 17. What is the location? Where are the believers in verse 15? Well, they're in heaven, aren't they? They're in the new creation. So we're clearly at the end. I mean, this is, a, this is the new creation. This, this is Revelation 21 and 22 in advance, isn't it? 
They're before God's throne. They serve him day and night in his temple. But of course, that language isn't literal, for there's no literal temple in heaven. We're told in Revelation chapter 21, verse 22, there is no temple in heaven. So the physical temple points to the presence of God. The temple is symbolic, pointing to the greatest blessing of all. That's Emmanuel. That's God with us. As we read here, God will shelter them with his presence. Literally, it says God will tabernacle over them. He'll temple with them, tabernacle with them, dwell with us. His presence will protect us. Nothing can touch us then. Suffering's over then. Nothing can touch us when we are before his throne. Remember the guy I told you about last night, Oki. He suffered horribly. I don't want to suffer horribly, but maybe God will call me to do it. And we're all called to suffer to some extent. He'll give us the grace. But that is temporary, isn't it? It's temporary. There's a new creation. There's a new heavens and earth coming. So we see that again in the book, we're at the end of history in these verses. What awaits us? All the perfection and all the beauty that we long for. Hunger and thirst will be no more. No more will we face the intense heat of the sun or the groaning and the crying and the anguish of life in this world. You know, Isaiah describes the second exodus in Isaiah 49, verse 10, in similar ways. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor rain shall strike them, for he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will he guide them. What God promised in the second exodus, the second deliverance of his people from Babylon, is fulfilled in in a final and ultimate manner in the new creation, in the new heavens and earth that is coming. He'll satisfy our needs forever. And why is that? It's because the lamb in the midst of the throne will shepherd us. I mean, here's another indication that Jesus is God, right? Because what does the Old Testament say? The Lord is my shepherd. You know that verse, right? Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. But here, John says, the lamb is our shepherd. Lambs aren't shepherds. Lambs aren't shepherds. But this lamb is our shepherd. He's our God. That's a striking image, isn't it? This lamb is also the good shepherd. And the good shepherd leads us beside still waters. That's, that's the new creation. That's the, that's the inheritance that awaits us. In Ezekiel 37, verse 23, God promises to establish a shepherd, my servant David, to feed and shepherd his people. It's clearly referring to Jesus Christ. The lamb as a shepherd will lead us to refreshing water where we can drink, just as the Lord led his people beside still waters. So do you long for those still and peaceful and restful waters forever? Well, we're told here the lamb will guide us to springs of living water. We experience that in an inaugurated way partially now. 
But that means every desire, every longing, the deepest longings you have, they're going to be fulfilled and satisfied. He'll fill up every empty spot in our lives. He'll wipe every tear from our eyes, every tear that we've shed because of our own sins, every tear we've shed because of that. And I have some tears to shed because of that. And so do you. Every tear we've shed because of our own sins, they'll be removed. And every tear we've shed because of the suffering and pain in this world will be wiped away. There, there are some hurts so deep, some, some wounds so deep. And that's true of people in this room, isn't it? That, that, that they can hardly be expressed. And, and, and they're more than we can almost handle. But the Lamb cares for us and loves us. And He's working with us now, but finally He's going to remove all those wounds and all those injuries and everything that makes us weep. The Lord will remove every tear of pain, every tear that we've shed because we've suffered will be wiped away. God will spread the glory of his presence over us and he'll be with us forever and ever and we will rejoice forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. Father, how thankful we are that you are our father. How gracious of you to send your son as the lamb who is slain so that by his blood our robes are made white. Lord, we are, we are so privileged to be sealed and protected and owned by you, to be part of your army, to be part of your people, to be part of the promises made to your people Israel, to be part of the new and true Israel. What a glory that is. And Lord, we know that you've promised that will suffer. You haven't promised that life will be easy, but you promised to be with us and to strengthen us and to keep us in our suffering. And Lord, let us never forget the great reward you've promised us, that you will wipe every tear from our eyes and you will shepherd us and dwell with us forever and ever. May that be a great encouragement to our souls. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.